I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health and fitness industry to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Hello, welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. If you're new to the show, welcome. I hope you find this really interesting and insightful content. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. It's good to have you. My guest this week is Dr. Greg Potter. He's the content director for humanos.me, which is an education and behavior change platform dedicated to helping people be at their best every second of the day. I'm on that platform. It's brilliant. I suggest you have a look at that. It's humanos.me. And Greg's PhD work at the University of Leeds focuses on sleep, on diet, metabolic health in UK adults. He's got a BSc and an MSc in exercise physiology from Loughborough University. He's qualified as a personal trainer and a sports massage therapist. So there are many strings to Greg's bow. He's also worked as a sprints coach to national level athletes. And he spent about six months in the sports science and sports medicine division at Rugby Football Union. So he's done a lot. He's got a lot of qualifications. And in this episode, we talk all about sleep, particularly how sleep is connected to body composition. So we're talking there about weight loss, weight gain, weight management, muscle acquisition. How does sleep affect that? And it's interesting. I think you'd be surprised at the correlation between a lack of sleep over just one night or a buildup of sleep debt and what effect that can have on your body composition. It's quite startling. So have a listen to the episode. Um, enjoy. If you've got questions for either Greg or myself, fire them off to me, Leanne, L-E-A-N-N-E, at bodyshotperformance.com, and we'll get back to you. Enjoy the show. Greg, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Yeah, no, thanks for making the time. I've introduced you a little bit and a bit about your background, but tell us, what got you into the area of sleep? So I'd always been interested in health and became interested when I was about 11. And actually, I had a place at university to study English literature and thought to myself, why am I doing this? I've spent all my free time for the last seven years studying health in my free time. So halfway through my gap year, I thought, no, this needs to change. And I ended up going to study exercise science. While I was there, became interested in nutrition and training and so on. And thought to myself, well, I feel like I've got an okay handle on these now. So what else am I missing if what I'm interested in is helping people with their health through lifestyle? Mm -hmm. And sleep wasn't really addressed on the course that I did. I ended up doing a master's in exercise physiology too. But then during that, I was looking around at PhD options, found one at the University of Leeds, which was studying sleep and the circadian system and thought, perfect. So since then, I've been focusing on it. So for about the last three and a half years or so, and it's just a subject that the more time you spend looking at it, the more fascinating you realise it is. And it's a really interesting time to talk about sleep, isn't it? Because there's an increasing awareness. I talk about this all the time in all my content, that we're kind of getting away from the macho idea that winners sleep for five hours and losers lie in and losers nap. You know, Ariana Huffington's done some good work in that regard. We're starting to realise that sleep, described to me by an ex-military man the other week, is a weapon. Now, I can see on a battlefield, it very well is. You know, you sleep when you can, because if you're tired, you're going to make poor decisions and have poor reactions. But I think for all of our corporate athletes out there, you know, our target audience of busy professionals, sleep is something we should absolutely be prioritising. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you need to prioritise now in our 24-7 society, because otherwise you just probably won't meet your sleep needs. Yeah, There are also a couple of good books that have been published recently. Matthew Walker's is the most recent Why We Sleep, 
which I presume you probably read, I thought was a brilliant book in taking some reasonably complicated ideas and condensing them down into quite simple terms. Uh, One thing that stood out for me amongst a few things was he said, if you were to round up or round down to the nearest percentage, the people who do thrive on six hours sleep or less, it would be rounded down to zero. That's how few people have that genetic variation. Is that something that you agree with and you found through your research? Yeah, it's something that I do agree with. And it's not something that I've looked at in my own research. Just as an aside, it's a great book. People should read it. Matt Walker is a brilliant scientist. He's a great communicator too, which is a rarity among scientists. And I probably have a bit of a man crush on him. <laughs> so buy that book. Yeah. But yeah. We'll link to it in the show notes as well for anyone listening. <laughs> the genetic variant you're speaking about is there are a couple that have been identified, but the first one that stood out was a gene called DEC2, which we don't need to worry about specifics, but it's a transcriptional repressor in the circadian clock. And people with a rare single point mutation in that gene need about 1.8 hours less sleep than the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And that is the shortest amount of sleep that's been identified. So that's only 1.8 hours less than the rest of us who supposedly need seven to nine hours. So that's six hours of sleep. Yeah. And if you look at sleep trends and how often most of us get less than six hours of sleep, that gives you pause. Hmm. I think our new normal around sleep's completely changed. Over time, I don't know the exact statistic, but over time I think the amount of sleep we've got has reduced. And that's become people's new normal. You know, if I get six, six and a half hours I'm okay. People have got used to waking up in the night to use the loo possibly difficulties getting to sleep. You're just used to feeling a bit groggy in the morning. It's kind of sad, isn't it? I think it's so important for overall health. Yeah, it's interesting because actually there have been several quite high-profile reviews published recently suggesting that the amount of sleep we're getting isn't necessarily declining. But with that said, you only need to ask yourself, do I wake up to an alarm in the morning to work out if you get as much sleep as you need? Mm. It's, It's that straightforward. Mm. And I think regardless of whether that's changing over time, there are things that you can do to identify whether you're meeting your sleep needs. So if, for example, you spend your time rereading a line of text during the day while you're set, all of those kinds of indices show you that you aren't meeting that need. So regardless of what the epidemiology says, I think the majority of people stand to benefit hugely from sending better to their sleep. Yeah. And just briefly, I know it's quite a complicated thing, but what happens when we sleep? What are the benefits that we're getting? That's that's a few books. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the benefits depend on things like the different stages of sleep that you're looking at. But broadly, we can think about sleep as serving very important restorative processes. And many people focus on the brain. So you can look, for example, at what happens when someone doesn't get enough sleep and In those circumstances, things like memory will be impaired and you'll be predisposed to neurodegenerative conditions. If you look at metabolic health, then risk of type 2 diabetes and obesity and various other diseases increases with insufficient sleep. So that's one way of looking at it. But exactly why we sleep is a really important question that we still don't necessarily have a really good handle on. And various people have discussed why sleep has evolved. And I don't think that people have really reached any sort of consensus on that. And I think that the reality is that 
it's evolved for many different reasons. And what speaks to that is the fact that if you disrupt someone's sleep, then more or less no aspect of someone's biology is not impaired by that lack of sleep. One of the things I really want to focus on, because I think in all the conversations I have with people, often the conversation is around body composition. So really we're talking there about typically losing fat, but it might be acquiring muscle as well, is a real underappreciation of the link between sleep and the ability to gain weight, lose weight, or maintain a healthy weight. So can you start to talk about what's going on with that connection? Yeah, so I'll probably mention just what we know about what happens when somebody doesn't get enough sleep. So one way of looking at this question is collating information from various prospective studies. So you follow people up over a period of time and you see how their sleep patterns relate to change in weight over time. And a meta-analysis just takes these studies and it weights them according to how good the studies are to give you an overall picture of the research on that particular topic. A recent meta-analysis of 11 studies found that among people who were short sleepers within the context of the whole group, they had 45% higher odds of developing obesity in the coming years. Wow. So the question is, why does that take place? And Hmm. to answer that, what you really need is experimental studies in which you take people from outside and you bring them into a laboratory so you can tightly control all the variables that could influence someone's sleep and someone's weight. And in those circumstances, if you look at all of the studies that have done that and what happens to how many calories someone consumes and how many calories they burn during the day, then it seems that on average, restricting someone's sleep, when I say restriction, I mean curtailing it. I don't mean depriving them of sleep entirely. That's an important distinction to make. Mm -hmm. Restricting someone's sleep tends to increase energy intake, calorie intake by about 385 calories per day. Wow, that's huge. It is over time. It doesn't necessarily sound yeah. much, but as soon as you start adding that up over the course of a year or whatever, that's very meaningful potentially. It doesn't influence how many calories someone expends. But another important point is that there's large variability in susceptibility to the negative effects of sleep loss between people. So some people are going to be far more negatively affected than that. Mm. And there are few, very few, very fortunate people who are going to be somewhat protected against those negative consequences. But anyway, what those findings suggest is that on average, energy balance is going to be about 385 calories a day higher than it would be if that person was getting sufficient sleep. So the question is, why is that the case? And I'll just touch briefly on mechanisms because there are quite a few of them. An obvious one is just the fact that someone has more time during the day in which to eat. Really simple. Mm. There are probably also endocrine changes, and the results on this aren't entirely consistent, but many studies have found that the levels of an appetite-suppressing hormone, which is reflective of long-term energy status, called leptin, decline after sleep restriction, and levels of another hormone, which is gut-derived, called ghrelin, which promotes or stimulates appetite, increased after sleep. So that's a double whammy, which should lead someone to more energy. So ghrelin signals to the brain, I'm hungry. Leptin signals to the brain, I'm full. Is that about right? Yeah, leptin goes down, ghrelin goes up. Okay, so you've got a perfect storm there. 
extra hunger signals, reduced satiety signals, like a perfect storm for weight gain. Yeah, perfect storm, which is compounded by other effects too. So one other effect is changes in brain activity. So after sleep loss, if you show someone pictures of yummy food or whatever, then the parts of the brain that are involved in craving, rewarding foods, very palatable foods tend to light up more. Mm -hmm. That's one contributor. Another thing is that there's a part of the brain which has recently evolved called the frontal cortex. And you can think of it as effectively allowing you to do the right thing to do when it's the harder thing to do. And after sleep loss, this particular part of your brain is less well connected to other regions of the brain. Mm -hmm. For that reason, you become more impulsive. So it's not just that you're consuming more calories. Another issue is that you're actually more likely to consume calories from poorer food choices. Mm -hmm. So that's one more contributor. And then a few other things point to the importance of sleep. So if we think about somebody who has been on a diet for a long period of time, let's say you're a physique competitor who's getting ready for a physique competition and you're in the final two weeks of your diet or whatever. In those circumstances, someone's sleep will routinely fragment. And of course, the evolution of reason might be it gives them more opportunity to go out to try and acquire food. So that also points to this important relationship between sleep duration and weight. And then the final thing that I'll add is that if you take someone who habitually restricts their sleep and you give them more time in which to sleep, over the course of several weeks, people will tend to consume less free sugar, so about 10 grams less free sugar per day over the space of four weeks. That was reported this year by some researchers at King's College in London. And not only that, but people's appetites also tend to decrease and their cravings for sweet and salty foods in particular. So all of these changes point towards an obesogenic environment of insufficient sleep. Mm-hmm. The final thing that I'll add, sorry, I'm very long-winded. No, 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 go on. Is just that if you're on a very carefully controlled diet and you're allowed enough time in bed, then it seems that the majority of weight that you lose will be from fat tissue. However, in a study that compared what happens when someone's allowed eight and a half hours of time in bed during a hypoenergetic diet to five and a half hours of time in bed, over the course of two weeks, the people who weren't allowed as much sleep as they needed ended up losing 55% less of their body mass from fat tissue. So it's not just a question of body weight, but it seems that disrupting your sleep selectively increases the amount of lean body mass that you lose. So is that suggesting then that those groups that had five and a half hours sleep were actually potentially losing lean muscle mass? Exactly. Yeah. So lean body mass, that was assessed by DEXA. And you can't say for sure that it was muscle mass because actually during a weight loss diet, all organs tend to reduce in size somewhat, even your liver and and so on. Oh, really? I had no idea of that. So all the organs actually shrink slightly in relative to your body mass. That's right. Oh, wow. There are other issues too, obvious ones like hydration. So if your tissue is less well hydrated because your glycogen stores are reduced, then that's going to register using most body composition analysis methods as being a reduction in lean body mass, even though to most of us that wouldn't bother us. But with that said, anyway, 
I suspect that if it's 55% higher after sleep restriction, then at least some of that is going to be coming from muscle tissue. They didn't do assessments of things like strength in that study, but I think that there's reason to expect that. Yeah. Okay, so it sounds as though sleep is essential for any kind of weight loss. If we focus just on weight loss rather than muscle gain, any kind of weight loss program. And I suppose there's also the angle that if you're tired, you're less motivated, you're less energetic, you perhaps will have a bit more of an internal monologue about whether to go do that workout. Do you taper down that workout? Do you not go at all? What have we observed in studies around that? Are you aware of any? I don't think it's been as well studied, but you're absolutely right because in these nice lab experiments where they focus on the effects of one thing on one thing, you can very carefully get a, a particular relationship. But of course, in a free living environment, if someone gets insufficient sleep, then that's going to affect their cognition too. And there have been hundreds of studies looking at the effects of insufficient sleep on cognition. So things like your ability to plan, initiate and monitor your behaviours, which falls under the category of executive function, that routinely seems to be impaired. Measures of attention also impaired. Mm. So the likelihood of you suffering from attentional lapses during time on a particular task will also drop off with insufficient sleep. But I don't think that we can really say that much about the effects of sleep on some of those behaviours which are likely to influence someone's body composition specifically. So things like motivation to exercise and so on. And the reason is it's just hard to study people in free living environments and from those studies to determine cause and effect. And of course, even if you brought people into a lab and you said you're allowed to roam around as much as you like in here during the day, they're still in the confines of a room. Mm. Their activity patterns are likely to be very different. Yeah. What would be elsewhere in the big wide world? Mm. Sorry, I don't mean to dodge the question, but I, I really don't think that we have a very clear picture of that right now. Yeah, I think anecdotally, most people can probably relate to that. I'm tired. I can certainly speak for myself. If I'm tired, I will crave refined carbohydrates and sugary foods. Same thing, really. And my motivation to exercise will be diminished. I may fight that, but the enthusiasm and the energy I'll bring to a task or an exercise session, it'll be harder work. Yeah, and I agree with that. One thing that I'll add is that there has been some work looking at the effects of sleep loss on exercise performance. And perhaps surprisingly, most measures of exercise performance don't seem to be strongly affected by a single night of insufficient sleep or sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. But people will rate the session as being far more burdensome than otherwise. And of course, they're not in a study, so they have to do it. And if they were left to their own devices, the question is, would they do it off their own backs after a night of no sleep? And in my mind, as you suggested, I think they're probably far less likely to. That's a good raise as a question, actually. The changes we see in increased ghrelin and reduced leptin, is that after an accumulation of sleep debt or do we see that after just one night of poor sleep? That is a good question. I think, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, please do. I think that you're more likely to see, no, I'm just speculating. I don't know. I was going to say I think that you're more likely to see the increase in ghrelin because leptin is more of a long-term marker of overall endometriosis. And the principal determinant of the amount of leptin in your bloodstream is just your fat tissue stores. But ghrelin is more reflective of short-term energy status. 
So I suspect that you'd be more likely to see ghrelin. So is leptin, but ghrelin's involved in many different physiological functions and also in how your brain functions and things like your motivation to go out and seek food. So it tends to have quite a strong short-term effect on some of those behaviours, but I really don't know off the top of my head. Mm. Okay. All right, let's flip it. What does sleep do in terms of helping us to build lean muscle mass or convert the benefits from, let's say, the physiological change from an exercise session? Yeah, so with respect to muscle mass, again, I'm just speaking with my scientist hat on, but I'm not aware of any long-term studies that have looked at the effects of changing someone's sleep on their responses to a resistance training intervention, for example. Mm -hmm. But with that said, I think what you can do is you can look at what happens when someone doesn't get enough sleep and then extrapolate from those findings and speculate about what the consequences might be. So we know, for example, that if you restrict someone's sleep, as a man, your testosterone levels will be suppressed relatively quickly by that sleep restriction. Mm -hmm. Testosterone levels within a physiological range don't tend to be strongly predictive of someone's responses to training. But in my mind, this isn't something that's binary where you either have low testosterone and poor responses or high testosterone and strong responses. I, th I think that over time, because adaptations to exercise are the result of very small cumulative effects in response to each of the individual training bouts, even small differences in something like testosterone could add up over time. If we look at other hormones, then during deep sleep, N3 sleep, non-REM sleep, your body produces more growth hormone. And growth hormone is not so important to the synthesis of new muscle tissue specifically. And some people used to think that, but actually, if, for example, you take someone and you give them exogenous growth hormone injections, then they do lay down more lean body mass, but it tends not to be muscle mass. It tends to be connective tissue. So effectively, they just deposit lots and lots of collagen and end up with really strong ligaments and tendons and fascia. That is very relevant, actually, because that's going to probably reduce your risk of injury over time, having mm -hmm. growth hormone secretion. And also, it probably has protective effects against some of the consequences of aging. So anyway, if you get adequate slow-wave sleep, then you're going to produce more growth hormone in total. And that should help with things like the recovery of your joints after the minor damage that they suffer during bouts of exercise. And then also, obviously, while you're awake, you do burn slightly more energy just because your brain has to function and so on. And let's say that you're up and you're, you're moving around. You're going to be depleting some of your body stores. And that could lead to a less anabolic environment in some tissues. So those are three different factors that are probably worth considering. But as I yeah. right now, we can't really say anything specifically about the consequences of disruptive sleep on anabolic responses to training. Okay. Now, you mentioned aging and there's one more thing I wanted to talk about as well on the topic of sleep, and that's Alzheimer's disease, which we typically associate with getting older, something which is on the increase. And I think a lot of people are now concerned about that. What do we know around sleep? and Alzheimer's. Is there a plaque with beta amyloid that builds up or is cleared during the sleep process? Is that right? That's exactly right. And there was a study that's published within the last couple of months. I haven't read it yet, so I can't speak to it properly. But what they found was that after a single night of sleep loss, 
there was increased deposition of beta amyloid plaques in the brains of human subjects, which is quite alarming in my mind. And beta amyloid is a bit like cholesterol in that people, I think, historically have associated it with always being a bad thing. And it's probably not just a bad thing, but there do seem to be certain forms of it which definitely do contribute to Alzheimer's disease specifically. And the reason that this is the case is probably that as you sleep, the brain's immune system or lymphatic system goes to work and the spaces between the cells in your brain open up and some of these metabolic debris are effectively washed from those spaces. So if you deprive someone of sleep, then they don't go through those cycles. And as a result, there's more and more of this harmful debris which is building up and over time contributing to neurodegeneration right well unfortunately i know we've just scraped the surface of uh, of sleep but you have given us some real insights so thank you for that i think the writings on the wall really is that most of us need seven to nine hours of sleep it's the composition of that sleep that's as important as the duration so i think correct me if i'm wrong is it very roughly 50 percent light 25 percent deep and 25 percent rem sleep yeah, roughly. Roughly. Yeah. I mean, some people won't track it, they won't know, but I think I wear a device called the Ura Ring, which tracks my sleep in. Do you have an Ura Ring? I don't know, but I'm, I'm interested in them. And I know that Dan, who works with Human OS, is a massive fan of them. Yeah. I'm impressed by what I've seen from them. I just haven't experienced using the ring myself. Yeah. I mean, it's a great bit of kit. I've been wearing it for a couple of years. Yeah, I believe it's around 85% accurate against a Stanford sleep lab, which is pretty good. And we have a discount code for anyone who's interested. It's Body Shop Lura, and we'll link to all of that in the show notes. But the Ura Ring tracks sleep, it tracks activity, and it gives you a recovery score. It's a, a clever bit of kit, but that's how I measure the composition of my sleep. But REM sleep is the thing that I, I get, try and get more of. That's what I'm usually quite low in, anything from 20 minutes to an hour and a half. So any tips you've got for increasing REM sleep? You know, maybe we can, <laughs> you could share those. Yeah. Well, I, it's a tough one. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily focus on trying to increase a particular stage of sleep. But okay. I do understand the desire to improve particular aspects of sleep. And I've actually spent more time looking at how you can improve slow wave sleep specifically. Is that deep? Yeah, deep sleep. Yeah, yeah. REM sleep broadly speaking, seems to be important to things like your ability to recognize the emotions of others, creativity, because it effectively provides a relatively safe neurochemical environment in your brain in which collide disparate packets of information and form new associations. So during the day, it's as if you're getting information from the environment around you. During deep sleep, it's as if you're consolidating that information, storing it. And then during REM sleep, it's as if you're integrating it all and making sense of the world. Deep sleep, on the other hand, seems to be very important to things like blood sugar regulation and the ability to form memories and executive function, which is something that I mentioned earlier. So I can definitely speak to how to improve deep sleep, but I, I actually suspect that we know less about how to improve REM sleep. Many people understand what contributes to increased slow wave activity during deep sleep. But actually, how can we target REM sleep specifically? I, I know less about that. Hmm. But I've heard about certain dietary supplements, which purportedly may affect that. I haven't really looked at them closely, and I haven't been terribly impressed with the, the data on those either specifically. But 
the majority of the literature has looked at slow wave sleep enhancement specifically. So I can't really help you out there, I'm afraid. Okay. Well, given you've said it, it's probably not worth worrying too much about. No, I th- and I think that actually fundamentally the things that we can all do to improve our sleep are much the same. And I'm not sure that many of us should necessarily be trying to get more of a particular stage of sleep. Our bodies know what they need. They self-regulate very effectively. And I'm sure there's inter-individual variability in the proportion of the different stages of sleep that you need. And also, sleep's a dynamic process. It's not as if you always need eight hours of sleep. You're going through a period of heavy exercise, for instance. You might need more sleep. and You'll probably end up getting more slow-wave sleep specifically. Mm. Or... If you're inflamed during an illness, you'll probably temporarily need more sleep in response to that too. So the question is, how do you put yourself in the the sleep that you need without worrying too much about the specifics? And, And I think that there are many very simple things that people can implement, which I'm very happy to speak about. Mm -hmm. Yep, please do. So I'd start with the daytime. What can you do while the sun's out? I think spending time outdoors is very important. So on average, in industrialized societies, we spend about 88% of our time in enclosed buildings and we don't get the benefits of bright light exposure during the day. And that's important because a lot of people will focus on light exposure at the moment, but actually the photoreceptors in the eyes, which record information about our light exposure history, are quite sluggish. They integrate that information over long periods of time. So actually, if you get lots and lots of bright light during the day, then a small amount of light at night is much less likely to affect you negatively. So that's important. Doing lots of physical activity is key. And so is just doing cognitively demanding work. So doing engaging tasks at your workplace is going to be key. And the reason is, this is something I've hinted at earlier, but during the day as your brain expends energy, it presynaptic neurons in your brain release ATP into the extracellular fluid. And that can be broken down into adenosine, or it can just stay as ATP. But anyway, this ATP or adenosine then stimulates the production of inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha and IL-1-beta, and they act on sleep-promoting parts of the brain to make you more sleepy and increase the depth of your sleep specifically. But they also inhibit weight-promoting regions of the brain. So in general, the more activity that you do during the day, both focused mental activity and physical activity like exercise, the more likely you are to experience the beneficial effects of deep sleep at night. Right. And then if we look at nighttime, I think that routine is really important. And I'm a big fan of suggesting people set an alarm for the start of their pre-bed routine. So let's say if you need an hour to wind down for bed each night, set it for an hour before you plan to go to sleep. If we look at light, then you want to dim the lights. You can wear blue blockers if you like. You can install various apps on your computer and your phone and so on to filter out blue light and reduce the brightness settings. And then also during sleep, you can focus on things like including blackouts in your bedroom or use heat mask to block out any extraneous light. Temperature is key too. So you want to be in a cool bedroom, but before bed, you actually want to raise your skin temperature specifically by a couple of degrees. The way to do that is with a warm shower, something like 10 minutes at 40 degrees C or so within an hour of sleep is generally about right. And the reason is that if you raise your skin temperature, then you create a gradient between your core temperature and your skin, which actually helps you radiate heat out into the environment. 
And that's important because your brain temperature actually needs to drop by a couple of degrees to facilitate sleep onset. So that's something simple that you can do. You specifically want to keep your hands and your feet warm, so keep your socks on in bed. Other things, noise is important. So you can have a white noise machine or something to block out any sounds from the outside. And regarding diet, I would just suggest that you go to bed neither too hungry nor too full. If you have a meal too late, then your body burns energy digesting food, and that tends to raise your body temperature. So that's going to hinder your ability to fall asleep quickly. But obviously, if you're hungry, then your body wants to go out and get food. So you don't want that either. Cut down on caffeine and alcohol, of course. Caffeine, I generally suggest that people consume no more than about two milligrams per kilo within about nine hours of bedtime. So that's generally about a cup of coffee, about nine hours before bedtime for most people, if that's the source of caffeine. Alcohol, it tends to help people fall asleep faster, but it disrupts sleep later in the night and is definitely a bad thing. So I think that having alcohol earlier is going to be useful and also reducing your intake, if possible, is going to be helpful. And then the final thing I'll mention is just mentally preparing for sleep. Yep. So yep. we work recently suggesting that doing something as simple as planning the next day and taking notes to get things out of your mind and onto paper or onto a notepad on a digital device, whatever is useful it's going to reduce the stress levels and tends to help people fall asleep faster and then things that you can do to shift the balance of your autonomic nervous system towards a more parasympathetic state so that could be a breathing exercise it could be meditation it could be progressive muscle relaxation something like that can also be really helpful for people that have an overactive mind hmm. i think that last point is really crucial as well because you could do lots of these things you know the blackouts a little bit of lavender oil on your pillow and everything else, body temperature is just right. But if your mind's still racing and you're preoccupied and you can't switch off and you're tired and wired, it's all going to be for nothing because you're not going to sleep well. So, all right, brilliant. Thank you for that. Do you want to talk about your involvement in the Human OS platform? Yeah, I'd love to. Love to. So I've been working with Human OS, as in Human Operating System, for probably nearly 18 months now. Dan, the CEO, reached out to me after he read a paper that I published and I got on their podcast. People who are interested in sleep should check out Human OS Radio. There are some really interesting interviews with professors who study various aspects of sleep, but also other things too. Okay, Human OS Radio. We will link to that in the show notes. Yeah, and I began creating a course for them on how your body clock influences metabolism specifically. And that's now available for pro users of the site. And otherwise, I've since handing in my PhD, more or less been working full-time with them, mostly to generate content. So things like blog posts, which are free for people to see if they so desire, and also courses, doing some podcast work, just being involved in various different things. And the purpose of Human OS really is to help you make your day better. And I know that sounds a bit nebulous, but it's effectively one place where you can go to find out, what do I need to do to improve my health? How do I do that? Am I doing it? So it integrates with various tracking devices. And then is it working? Is it shifting important health parameters in the right direction? So that's how the particular behavior change model works. Because I think that it's easy to get wrapped up in cool new things, which might have some merit, but also for many people, they're a lower hanging fruit. And I don't know what your experience is, but if I think about myself and the most healthy people that I know, 
they're often not people who are mainlining dozens of supplements each day or hyper-focused on a particular aspect of their diet. So I think if you have that kind of preoccupation with your health, then it can be a negative thing. But if you're being physically active consistently and consistently attending to your sleep needs and you're involved in loving relationships and you're not exposed to a bunch of environmental toxins, then you're likely to be in pretty good nick. And the purpose of human OS really is to make the most important behaviours more salient, to bring them to the forefront of your mind. And I think that it effectively does that. And I'm really proud to be part of the team. Cool. Well, we've got a promo code for anyone who wants to check it out. The URL is humanos.me. And we've got a promo code, which is Remove the Guesswork, the title of this show, which gets you, I think, one month for $1 on checkout. So we'll link to all of that in the show notes. I really recommend people go and check the platform out. I'm on it. It's great. And you can link up very various wearable tech devices to it as well, so you can track everything. Greg, thank you very much. Where are the various different points that people can reach you? Or what's the easiest way of people getting in touch with you if they want to? I guess Twitter probably is. So Twitter handle is just at G for Greg, D for David, M for Max Potter, at GDM Potter. Also check out at HumanOS underscore me on Twitter. But otherwise, I would just push people towards the site. So HumanOS.me, check out the blog, check out the podcast and get in touch. Any questions, I'm always very happy to try to help out. Cool. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, bodyshopperformance.com and click on Take the Test. And it'll take you through to a very short two to three minute health IQ test. At the end of that, you'll get a scorecard based on your results and a free 39 page report built all around our six signals, which are sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. So jump on the website, bodyshopperformance.com and take our test. Finally, thanks for listening to this show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and it's added value to you, share the episode with someone you think could benefit from it. And don't forget to leave a rating, a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.